I have a little riddle for you this morning. So here it is. Um, two people are going through a doorway, one going in one direction, the other in the other direction. How could you tell if they were Canadians? They both stand back or they both say sorry, right? We are a nation of sorry sayers. We're sorry about everything, whether we should be or not, right? Several years ago, I was in uh, Uganda, in Arua is a city way up in the northwest of Uganda. And we were walking through the, the marketplace in the middle of the town. And I was with some uh, similarly colored missionaries, so we're pretty obvious to everyone that is, is at home there in Arua at the market. And as I was walking through the market, I just stumbled a little bit on some loose gravel. And there was a chorus of sorry from everywhere around me. Was, sorry, 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 sorry. And I thought, well, it's okay. It wasn't your fault, right? But it, it was part of their custom to acknowledge anyone else's misfortune with a hearty sorry. I want to talk today about being sorry. Um, because we're going to look at a story that Jesus told about people being sorry. Um, my uh, car lease came due, and uh, you know all all of the um, bookwork was done, and all of the the trading and so on. So I made arrangements with the salesperson about when I would come and pick up the new vehicle, which they would prepare, they would clean, and you know it would be brand spanking new when I would come pick it up. So I arrived. Um, about five minutes before the time that we had arranged for me to pick up the vehicle. And when I walked in, the salesperson came out of his office and he said, I am so sorry I got the date wrong. Well, you know, I was kind of all set to go. The old car was filthy, dirty, full of junk, and I was just going to leave it there, right? Um, and he said, it, could you come back tomorrow? And I kind of thought, well... Yeah, okay. I mean, I arranged my schedule this afternoon to be able to come when we agreed that this transaction would all be complete and so on. I came back the next day, and sure enough, the vehicle was sitting out front like they're supposed to. It was all spanking clean. It was perfect, just what I wanted. So I went in, and the same salesperson brought me back into his office, and, and he told me some things that had been going on um, at the dealership in the last few days. And then he said something like this. I take full responsibility for that error. It was not the service department's fault. It was not the receptionist's fault. It was entirely, entirely my fault. I'm really sorry. And I waited because it seemed to me there should be something after that. And there wasn't. It is now um, a craft to take full responsibility. There's something noble about saying it was my fault, entirely my fault. I take full responsibility. I'm not blaming anyone else. But we, we don't go any farther than that. We don't say, and so I'm going to change this or that. I'm going to make sure this never happens again by securing this or that. It's just, I'm sorry, and that's the end of it. Well, being sorry is the first step, but it's not the whole deal. Proper sorrow, says the Bible, leads to repentance. Now, what does that mean? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. 
This is the Apostle Paul talking, and he's saying that some things have changed for the better in the community at Corinth. And he says, I'm really pleased to say to you that the sorrow that you felt has led you to change. It has led to repentance. Because there's another kind of sorrow that has no fruit attached to it. There's a kind of sorrow that's just being sorry, but nothing happens out of the sorrow. But godly sorrow, sorrow that is well-founded, is sorrow that always has a follow-up that we call repentance. Repentance is not always, you know, dust and ashes and saying, mea culpa, I'm terrible, I'm an awful person, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Repentance simply in the New Testament means changing your mind. Metanoia, it means have a new mind, think differently. Now, it may very often mean you also have to act differently, but it certainly means that you change your mind. So on a practical basis, I would suggest to you, if you're ever going to say, I'm sorry, have a follow-up. Tell the person to whom you're expressing your sorrow what it is that has changed or will change because you're sorry. And I think that would make a difference. And I think that is what Christian character is like. Christian character is not just saying, yep, it was my fault, terrible, Mm, nobody else's fault, just me. Christian character would say, and so. Here's how I'll make it up if I can. Here's how I will make sure that my character changes because of this. Here's how my behavior is going to change because of this. Because being sorry is not enough if it's not followed up by change. What are you going to change? So the story that we are looking at this morning is the classic story in the New Testament about the prodigal son. And we're, we're hearing Jesus' stories from, from Luke's pen as he has carefully assembled them. And Jesus in this chapter in Luke um, is recorded as telling the story of three lost things. There was a lost sheep, there was a lost coin, and now there's a lost son. And Jesus is wanting to make really clear pictures for us um, about what kind of, of living pleases him and is true to his kingdom and what kind is not. And so he says um, when, when the Pharisees are all upset because he's hanging out with people that are known sinners, whatever that was, um, tax collectors was one of the categories we're told, and other notorious sinners. And they began to criticize him and say, why do you spend all your time hanging out with these people that are undesirables? And Jesus says, because. Let me tell you some stories. First of all, which one of you, if you have 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, doesn't leave the 99 and go and find and rescue the lost one? Which one of you would leave it out in the wilderness? Or which among you would have lost a coin, a lovely coin, and she wouldn't sweep and sweep and sweep until she finds that coin? I want to tell you that these undesirables, these sinners of yours, in heaven they have parties when one of those is found. So yes, I'll be hanging out with them. Thank you very much. And then to further illustrate the story or the point, he tells this lovely story that has now become very, very well known, the story of the prodigal son. So it goes like this. A man had two sons. The younger one told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, 
and the man sent him to his fields to, to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Here's another one of those beautiful stories of Jesus that uh, I would have my version of it, and the story that Jesus told would always have a version that is a different version than mine, not what we expect. Every good story of Jesus took a turn towards some learnings about the kingdom. So here's the situation. Hey, Dad, you know, I like you and all that, but I want my, my estate right now. Really? I don't know if the father tried to talk him out of it. Don't know what the father thought of this. Don't know where the other brother was when this was going on. But the father said, okay, you have it coming, so here you go. So this guy took his estate, and he went into a far country, and he just lived a wild life. Um, Later on, we hear that he's been hanging out with prostitutes and having parties, and kind of the quintessential rebellious son, um, lost son. And then a famine comes along, and he is starving. He is he's at the end of his wits, as well as at the end of all of his resources. And so he, he does a, an awful thing. He takes a job doing something that no Jewish person would enjoy being part of, which is taking care of unclean animals. So pigs were unclean. It's, it would be one thing to look after sheep, something right about looking after sheep. But feeding pigs was the lowest, most despicable end that this guy could have come to. And of course, all of his friends are gone. This is a story that has been repeated and is being repeated over and over, right? All of those friends were just good time friends. There are probably lots of country songs about this guy's situation. So what does he do? Well, he finally came to his senses. And he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and when he was a long way off still, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him as he had rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening up. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Wrong narrative in my book. You can't just go and waste your dad's money and then come home and think everything's going to be okay, right? So my story goes more like the father sees him coming and says, quick, lock the doors. The loser's back. He probably wants to milk me for more money, and I've got no more for him. Tell him to go wherever he was. Get back under the rock and stay under the rock that he was hiding out under. It's not the way Jesus tells a story. And, and, and the thing that, that grabs our heads and our hearts is that we already know that he's talking about his father. So he's talking about God's relationship with his lost children. And my version of God would be a punitive version. It says something about being brought up by an Irish mom. right? You don't just do things and get away with them. right? You at least get the talking to. 
And the talking to is actually worse than the physical punishment because the talking to stings more than the whack on the bum. So some of you know what I'm talking. That's my version of the story. He has rehearsed his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. He's about to say, could you just please, and the father won't hear of it. He kisses him, and he says, quick, get a robe. Get something on this guy that, that you know, is, is more respectable than, than this outfit that he has. Get a ring for his finger, and now let's get the fattened calf ready and have a party because my son was dead, and now he's alive. Well, that's a strange turn to the story. But it's not the end of the story, because there's another character. He had a brother, and the brother did not ask for his inheritance. He stayed home dutifully, did his work, and was a faithful son. So my version of the story would have the father saying, now, I have to be really careful here because the older boy, he's been faithful to me all this time. He needs to know that I love, love, love him. And this guy's not going to get away with a lot. You know, we'll keep him in his place because this son has been faithful. Here's the way the story goes. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years, I've stayed, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Son, yes, you've been a faithful son. I have, I have no complaints about that. But your brother was dead, and now he's alive. We, we have to have a party. Well, the older brother says, hmm, fine, I'm not coming. And he went away and sulked. And we don't know what happened after that. But it's an incredible story, and it's a story that is full of intrigue. Some of the parables of Jesus, as we've commented, have a simple message. There's sort of one or two lessons that we can readily learn. This one is rich with character development. These three characters, the father and the older brother and the younger brother, and then we can imagine the others around, the rest of the cast, Where's the mother? Are there other siblings? Um, Are there other workers? What was going on in their minds? What was going on in their conversations as these three main characters carry forward the story that Jesus wants us to learn? What is the story that Jesus wants us to learn? Well, he wants us to learn about the Father's love without question. He wants us to learn that what is in God's heart is not to affirm religious, righteous, external behavior properly scripted and properly developed and delivered. That's all good. But what's in the Father's heart is that he has lost children, and more than anything else, he wants his lost children to come home. So the Father we see caricatured as watching Because we're told that when the son was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and ran and fell upon him and embraced him and wouldn't even let him get to the proposal that he should be hired as a, as a hired man. So the story is about the father, but it's also about those two boys. And it is particularly um, stinging and poignant for the Pharisees and religious people who are hearing the story. Because they would have no time for this prodigal. They have no time for people who don't do the things that religion requires. They have no time for people that walk away or don't fit the bill or don't complete the list or don't look like they should look. And yet Jesus just puts salt in that wound and he says, yeah, well, here's what the father's like. The father actually does really long for lost children to come home. He's, he's obsessed with that. Just like a shepherd who loses a sheep, just like a woman who loses a coin, our father obsesses over lost children and he wants them home. And he wants them home and it sort of escapes his mind that there are faithful religious um, zealots who are managing themselves very well. Thank you very much. And I would propose to you that this is a story about two lost sons, not one. You can be lost outside of faith, and you can be lost inside faith. You can be lost outside of religion, and you can be lost inside religion. We talked last week about the fact that the the binary notions we have about in and out, us and them, um, are pretty suspect these days. I really love the African view of things that basically asks, which way is the person facing? So not are they in or out, But when it comes to Jesus, are they facing towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Because you can be near Jesus in terms of religion, but your back can be turned. Or you can be far from Jesus, religiously speaking, but you can be turned towards him. And those who are facing towards Jesus have far better hope than those who are turning away from Jesus. Not are you in or out. Not did you go forward at a crusade or not. Not did you pray this prayer or not. Not do you believe these doctrinal points or not. What is your relationship with Jesus? Are you facing him or are you facing away from him? And here are two brothers. And the strangest thing is true, that the one who is religious is lost and he can't find his way home, even though he lives at home. The other one is lost And he's away from home, and he finds himself in a predicament where he so desperately wants some food even to eat that he figures out a way to get back home and at least eat the food that his father's servants are enjoying while he's thinking of eating pig slop. So he says, I'm going to go home. When we think about these these characters and and try to learn from them... um, what is our sorrow? So the thing that motivates um, the prodigal son is sorrow, that he's sorry. He's sorry for where he has ended up. And the thing that motivates us if we are to get back home or if we're to get close to the father or closer to the father will be some kind of sorrow, that we're sorry about where we are. And we would like to find a way home to the father out of our sorrow. It's just that this older brother doesn't recognize his sorrow, and the thing that prevents him from coming back home escapes his notice. He he doesn't get it, And, and so we need to get it. So what is our sorrow? Let's think, first of all, each one of us, 
uh, is a person that has known sorrow. Some of us do know sorrow. Some of us will have sorrow as, as we carry on into the futures before us. But sorrow is the human predicament because we live in a broken world. And when things are broken all around us and we're part of it, we will own the sorrow of our world and we will feel sorry. We will feel sorry about the situations that we presently find ourselves in. Maybe a, a physical condition that we have and we're sorry that we found ourselves in that. Maybe an economic situation we find ourselves in, we're, we're sorry we found ourselves there. Maybe a spiritual one where we're sorry we've ended up where we are in terms of what we believe or can't believe or, or trying to believe. We may be sorry because of problems we've caused ourselves. You know, sometimes you just have to say, hmm, yeah, that first part of it was right. It's me. It's totally me. I'm in the mess I'm in because of, let's say, me. Only me. I did it. But that's sort of helpful to begin, but it, it doesn't ultimately help because how does that sorrow go anywhere? I may be sorry because of problems that others have caused me. And that gets even trickier because the longer they go the more the sore festers and the more seeing that person again or having to encounter that person becomes a great challenge for me and I'm, I, I feel sorrow about it. Maybe it's a family wedding that I'm going to, but there's that person and what she did 25 years ago and they've invited her to the wedding and what she did hurt me. And I feel sorrow because I don't want to be at that wedding having a happy time with the rest of our family, but she's there. And it's because of something she did that I feel this, this terrible sorrow. We may have to say, I'm feeling sorrow because I've done something to someone and I don't know how to fix that right now. I've, I've caused somebody a problem and in the dark of night, it sort of grips my heart. I shouldn't have said that. I don't know what I was thinking. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And so it's that sorrow that kind of grips there's also a sorrow that we feel because of the problems of our world. And man, it just it doesn't get better, does it? As we listen to the news, watch the news, follow social media, and you keep hoping that there'll be a time when something that could happen maybe won't happen. Maybe Syria will not find itself finally, finally, absolutely devastated. And you know, maybe, the, maybe something will stop that maybe some but still we we think of our world and we think man there are problems in our world and the most honest response i think to the problems in our world is deep sadness there are good things this is a good world it was created well it was created good but we broke it and now we feel a sadness a sorrow that says it's in, and the world's not fair um it shouldn't be that this is going on there and I'm, I'm glad I'm not there to have to survive that, but it's not quite fair that I don't have to deal with that sort of thing. And the world is broken, and we feel sorry about it. So what do you do with sorrow? Paul says, godly sorrow produces repentance. Every sorrow that I feel or that we feel should lead to repentance. Now, it's not repentance of the sort always, that says, okay, I did it, um, I must have to pay for that somehow or other, um, so what is it that I have to do to, to make it right? 
Maybe that's so. Maybe that's, and, and actually that would be the easiest way for many things to be resolved. But repentance is to say, how can I think differently and therefore behave differently so that I don't find myself here again? So here's the difference between two sons. The one son is starving, and he asks himself, how do I get myself out of this and not find myself in this predicament again? So he takes full responsibility. He sits there and thinks, I've done this. What was I thinking, asking my dad for all that money? And where did it go? And what am I going to do about this? And then he says, okay. The thing that would stop him from coming home was pride. And, and I'm going to ask us, if the sorrow of, of any type um, is our experience and we want to repent, what's the thing that would stop us from taking that step of repentance? The thing that would have stopped the prodigal son would have been pride. If someone had come along and said, okay, you need to go back home and tell your dad you sinned against heaven and against him and beg him for forgiveness and then don't ever expect your room back. He might have said, that'd be tough to do. And pride might say, no, pride probably already has been at work in him because earlier on he might have thought, okay, this is not getting me anywhere or it's getting me to bad destinations, so I better stop this and figure out a way back. What could I do? Could I go back home? No, I can't go back home. Like, what's, what's dad going to say? What's my brother going to say when they see me coming back home? When the way I took off was basically, you know, thumbing my nose at them and saying, see ya, I'm going to live a life that I want to live. I'm going to have a good time. See you later. I got to take my pride and tuck it under my arm and walk home in humility. And pride may have stopped him from going home earlier. Pride may now have stopped him from making the journey back home. But he knew that there was a repentance that came out of his sorrow. And the repentance had to do with his being willing to take his pride and swallow it and come back home and beg his father to bring him into the house. But he didn't expect that he would get his room back. He just wanted to be back home where he knew that his dad was of such character that even his servants ate well and he knew he would be well taken care of. So he swallowed his pride, and he went back home. The older brother didn't really know that he was lost, which was his first problem. But the thing that stopped him from coming back home was entitlement. And entitlement is something that stops us in our tracks more powerfully than pride. Because sometimes we find ourselves in such a fix that we have no other way than to swallow our pride. But entitlement is something else. Entitlement is the older brother saying, huh, really? I am entitled to better treatment than you've shown me. I've been a faithful, religious, devoted person with you. You've never once even given me a goat for a party with my friends. I'm entitled to better than that. And the father says, yeah, but... Your brother was lost. He was dead. And now he's found and he's alive and he's swallowed his pride. Look, look at him. He's pathetic. And the brother says, I don't give a whatever. 
here I have been, and I'm entitled to better than this. I have rights. I've done the right thing. I am the right kind of person. I've behaved properly. I've believed properly. How dare you prefer that clown over me? I'm entitled. Entitlement is a greater impediment than pride. And we're living in a time when religion has entitled us. And folks, we are going to have to give it up. We never should have had it. Because as we've seen with Jesus, the theme that he harps on is humility. He, he just says, if you want to be in my kingdom, you can't get it without humility, without servanthood. Don't talk to me about what you're entitled to. And how many times did it come up? Um, what were you talking about on the road? Uh, we don't want to tell you. Come on, what were you talking about? Uh, we were talking about who's the greatest. You guys are pathetic. Excuse me, master, you know my two boys, James and John. I have a favor to ask. In your kingdom, could they please sit at your right hand and your left hand? Could they have entitlement? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. And when the others heard that they'd been arguing on the pathway about who was greatest, they were incensed. And they just kept on fighting and fighting about who's the greatest. And while they're doing it, Jesus gets on his knees and he strips down and he washes their feet. So entitlement is nothing for the child of God or the follower of Jesus. Entitlement is nothing for the church. We are not entitled to anything in this world's kingdom. We're not politically entitled. We're not economically entitled. We have had a run at things where we have had control and privilege, and now we don't know what to do because it's being taken away from us. And because we have abused it, and now we are not well respected. I met yesterday with a young couple who would like me to marry them, and they're the daughter of a friend of mine, and they have been through the church system, the very system that I've been part of, and they've been burned by it. And so they want to know how they can express their faith in their wedding ceremony and with their friends and so on without the trappings of the church that they feel has burned them. And those that are behind them are people who are entitled. So they're left out from that entitlement and they're hurt by it. So it's not our prerogative to have anything. It is our prerogative to be humble and to serve. It is not our uh, MO to use our strength and ingenuity because God's wisdom is more brilliant than, our God's foolishness is more brilliant than even our greatest wisdom if that was what we were to use. But we're to throw that stuff away and say, I, I'm, that's not what I bring to the table. I bring to the table my humility and my need and when I come to the table like that, then all of a sudden, out of my lostness, I'm welcomed home by my father. That son was in an awful predicament. And we can find ourselves there. We can find ourselves having been hurt by someone else and say, I'm entitled to better treatment than that. Or I have my rights. And so we might say, and so I'm not going to forgive her. I'm just not going to. Because I'm entitled to better treatment than that. 
and you're right. The father said to the older son, you're right. I have no qualms about saying that you have been the perfect son. But this one was lost, and that's what matters. And he has been able to deal with the impediment to the, the roadblock that could have stopped him from coming home, and you can't because you're still the older son. You're still right. And the older son might have said to the father, yeah, well, you're right as well. Why don't you just tell him to get lost, that he already has his inheritance and that's it? And the father might have said, yes, that's right. But that's not the tune I'm going to play. I'm going to play the tune of grace and compassion and forgiveness. And I'm going to welcome him home. And you should get over your entitlement. The beautiful thing is the father. And I don't know if you've looked at this Rembrandt picture often. It's um, one of my favorite books in the world. Is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henri Nouwen. Many of you will know it. It's, I won't lend it to you. That's how important it is to me and how s sinful I am about this. But I won't lend it to you. But I, I'll refer it to you and you should get one. So Rembrandt painted the picture of the return of the prodigal. Henri Nouwen went to the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, and for several days he had a chair, and he sat gazing at this portrait. He watched it through the day when the light was different as it moved through the hours of the day, and it broke his heart to come to appreciate the love of the Father in welcoming home the prodigal son. One of the lovely things about this portrait um, is the hands of the father. That if you have a look at them, the two hands are different, one from the other. We don't know who the other characters are. It's been suggested that the shadowy character immediately be behind the father is the older son. The person sitting on the chair is thought to be the financial advisor of the father or something. The mother is the a very faintly shown person in the, in the background, and then there's this impressive person that, that may in fact have been Rembrandt, finding himself standing, watching what was going on. The hands of the father are male and female. See, there's a male hand and a female hand. The God that we return to is a God who's our father, who loves us like our mother. He's faithful as a father, and he's tender as a mother. And Jesus said, here's what I want you to know. If you're lost, there is a father who will always welcome you home. So what is your sorrow? And what is the repentance that will help you get on your way back to the father? What, what do you need to do differently? What do you need to think differently? What do you need to believe differently? So do that work as preparation for the journey back to the father who is looking for you. And if you're lost and your sorrow is a sorrow that is because of something that has happened to you um, and, and you know, you're just kind of broken in it, know that the Father loves you and wants to bring you home. If you have to acknowledge that you are more like a Pharisee, more like an older brother, and you've been holding on to resentments and hatreds and that sort of thing, the repentance that you have to do is to let go of that. 
But as soon as you let go of that, the father will welcome you home. What if the older brother had said, I thank heaven that my brother has come home. I'm coming to the party. What might the father have said to him? He might have called to him and said, come here. You know I love you with everything that I am and have. And now we're together again, this, this whole family of us. You and your brother and me. And mom's right here as well, and she's feeling pretty good about the whole thing. If somehow or other there is someone that can't come home because they're afraid of you, can you change that? If you're an older brother and there's somebody and you're in the way of their coming home, because maybe you've been a bit too self-righteous and you've maybe had some standards that are way too high or expectations that are way too high, see, that older brother would have stopped his brother from coming home if he possibly could. The younger brother needed to hear from him, hey, I'm glad you're back. Um, so, so some of us might need to do that kind of work because the father has a heart that is wide open to folks who come back home. So whatever your sorrow is, whatever the impediment is, uh, think about the repentance, what do you have to do differently, think differently, believe differently. And then what's in the way? Get rid of the pride, get rid of the entitlement, and come on home because the Father has been watching and he wants to welcome you back home as well. He really does. What is God like? One of the interesting things in comparing people's faiths around the world is that in the, in the religion of Islam, you will never know whether God loves you or not. He's not a God who loves. And yet the Bible tells us that our God is love. And here's the epitome of it. Whatever your lostness is, God says, I'm watching for you. Start on the road. But do start on that road. Because if pride keeps you stuck, or if entitlement keeps you stuck, it's a sad story from then on. The Father's looking for you, and he wants you to come home. Why don't we pray? Father, help us to appreciate the incredible power of this story. Help us to see ourselves in the picture as accurately as we should. And help us to see you, to be amazed at your compassion and your love, and to be determined to let everyone that we know know that you are a God of compassion and love. And may we own those commitments ourselves so that we will be known as people of deep compassion and love, of forgiveness. Help us to rid ourselves of those things that exclude others because they don't meet our standards or expectations or even our fixed beliefs. May we be ready to love relationally and let you sort out what people believe at the end of the day as you welcome them home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.